This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, dim the lights and grab the popcorn. We'll look at the ways in which films can expand and deepen our experience of faith. We talk with Josh Larson, co-host of the radio show and podcast Film Spotting, about his new book, Movies Are Prayers, How Films Voice Our Deepest Longings. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Josh Larson. He's the co-host of the radio show and podcast Film Spotting and is editor and film critic at Think Christian, a website exploring faith and pop culture. He's been writing and speaking about movies professionally for more than two decades. Josh's career began in the newspaper business, where he started out as a beat reporter for a weekly community newspaper and went on to become the film critic for the Chicago-based Sun-Times Media for more than 10 years. In 2011, he joined the Christian media landscape as editor of Think Christian. And in 2012, he joined the long-running weekly podcast Film Spotting, aired on WBEZ in Chicago. A veteran of the Sundance, Toronto, and Chicago International Film Festivals, Josh has given talks on film at various colleges and conferences. He's also led Ebert Interruptus, a tradition established by Roger Ebert, which analyzes a single film scene by scene over several days at the University of Colorado's Conference on World Affairs. He's the author of the book, Movies Are Prayers, How Films Voice Our Deepest Longings. Josh Larson, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks for having me, David. It's good to be here. I want to start out philosophically. When I have taught film to undergraduates or when I have included film in my classes, one of the questions that I have asked them is, what's the difference? When you turn on a camera and just let the camera run, that's not a film. So what is it that makes a film a film? What is it that makes cinema cinema? the choices that are made on the part of the filmmakers, I would say. And one of those choices might be letting the camera just run. And I say that because I recently watched a very small documentary called Chosen that follows a young woman in her first year, maybe two years, I think it is, as a cloister nun following that path. And the filmmaker, the director and editor and producer, Abby Reese, chose to put the camera in the hands of this woman and let her choose what to film and how long to film it. And so, for example, there's a scene where she sets the camera down on her hands as she's eating her morning breakfast of just a piece of bread and a cup of coffee, and it sits there for a few minutes. No edits, no cuts. The camera just rolls, as you were describing. But there's a choice being made there, too. So the fact that someone has decided this is what should be shown and shown in this manner makes it a film. So surveillance footage, if you just put a camera in a place and just let it roll, that's not a film. But when someone takes 
the volition is what I hear you saying, and the volition is what makes the difference between just raw footage and, and what we might call a film. Yeah, or in that case, even using that surveillance footage and choosing what context to give it or what portions of it to show. That brings to mind another documentary, Whose Streets, from last year that was comprised almost entirely of cell phone footage of residents around Ferguson, Missouri, during the unrest there and how the filmmakers stitched those together to tell a narrative and an experience and a story. Those are all choices, too. But here's where things get interesting, and I'm going to stay philosophical, because you are writing now in a particularly Christian idiom. And so when we talk about having a spectator, there is a Christian notion that we always have a spectator. There's a Christian notion that every action, not even the fall of a sparrow, goes unnoticed by God. And so in one sense, let me then ask you, what's the difference between a film and everyday life, if everyday life is always being observed by God, what's the difference? What do we find in that moment of observation in a film that's different from the way in which we're supposed to live our everyday lives? Maybe there isn't that much difference. I mean, we are, who we are comes out of how we act, our actions. It's not just our thoughts, right? And so in that sense, the daily drama of our lives, the way we decide to live them, can have as much to say as a narrative that's been sketched out in advance and then filmed in a certain way. But what you're getting at is sort of the angle that I did take in the book is to switch that dynamic where I think Christians do think about films and consider what is a film saying to me and what can I take out of it? And I'm asking the question, how might God be hearing these movies when he watches them? Again, along the lines of what you're saying, yes, he does see all things, he hears all things, and that includes our films. We don't often think of that. We think of maybe those are what's made for each other. Or there's also a tradition in Christian approach to film to say, how might God be speaking to me through movies, right? What what common grace is to be found there? What truth what God's truth could be found there. But again, I'm flipping that and, and kind of saying, okay, that's true, but also let's reverse it. And what might these movies be saying to God? Well, in the book that we're discussing is your book, Movies or Prayers, How Films Voice Our Deepest Longings. And I got to say, first off, I love the book. I mean, I love the Thank fact you. that yeah, you're welcome. I love the fact that this wasn't just, it wasn't a book of film criticism in the sense of, you know, here's a review, here's the basic subject of the plot, and here are the things that it did well and did badly. Instead, what the book does is it really weaves together different motifs from films into larger thematic structures. And the structures are both theological, but they're also deeply human. The notions of, of longing, the notions of joy, the notions of awe and reverence, all of these play a part. And I, I think it's masterful the way that you are bringing together these to tell the larger story. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, I try to. It, it's trying to do two things at once. I think is is be a work of film criticism and be a work of theological reflection. Obviously, I'm more trained in the former, uh, so it took some self education to be able to talk in those other terms and see how those two things might meet. Well, one of the things that really jumped out to me early on was, you know, if you think about Christian movie review or religious movie review, you might think that that just means that we're reviewing films that have specifically spiritual content. Content. But instead, what I got very early on from your book is that your thesis is that films can convey religious themes and structures without having explicitly religious content. Is, is that a correct read? Yeah, and that's that was the test of the thesis, right? To say that our movies, our prayers be directed at a God who's always listening, even if we don't maybe intend them to be prayers, to say that 
makes a lot of sense if you're talking about something like On the Waterfront, which has a priest character who essentially gives sermons in the film, right? That's uh, It's right there for you. But I was more interested in these movies that don't have religious figures in them. There aren't spiritual themes on the surface, or at least in the narrative proper, and to ask how they might also be doing some of these same things that have spiritual or religious implications. Well, and at one point you mentioned the Philokalia, and if I'm remembering this correctly, Philokalia is an ancient religious text, but it basically makes the argument that every inch of the world and every moment of life is under the control of God. Is that is that correct? Yeah, and that's, you know, more specifically and more recently borne out by the Reformed tradition of which I'm a part, where you would have, say, Abraham Kuyper talking about God's sovereignty and how Christ has dominion over all things. Christ is in all things and, and, and as a matter of fact, claims all things, all of culture to be his. And, and we can look at that and say, well, that sounds awful aggressive or it's not a conquering. The way I read that is not necessarily as a conquering statement, but a statement more reflecting the goodness of culture and of creation. It's how it was first drawn about by God was because he wanted to give culture to us as a gift. And here's a way of still claiming that even though we're now in the fall. Well, following up on that and sort of taking that idea still in our philosophical portion of the conversation, Oftentimes, religious people will look at Hollywood as sort of a God-forsaken place. And let me scare quote God-forsaken, but, you know, the godly does not come, the holy does not come from the Hollywood Hills. And so how would Kuiper or others push back against that? Or would they? Would they assume that this media is God-forsaken? Or would they assert, no, even here, the grace and the wonder of God can be manifest? It's been a long time coming, but I think there's a more general movement towards saying, yes, even in a Hollywood film, you can find those instances of God's truth and common grace. And that's not to deny that there aren't Hollywood films that present challenges or issues or difficulties. I mean, these are made post-fall as well by fallen creatures. None of us is perfect. And so uh, to expect our art to have that level of righteousness or perfection is unrealistic. The trend has been, you know, if I look at my own history in my own lifetime, I grew up during the, the culture wars of late 80s, early 90s, and then it was very much a heightened religion versus Hollywood dynamic. And when I first started thinking about being a Christian who's interested in film and wanting to write about film, some of the options that were obvious to me would be places that counted swear words in movies. And, and that's how we engaged with film. And that just wasn't um, you know, necessarily the way I was raised or the way I thought about movies. And so I think that's largely one of the reasons my career went towards mainstream media is because it made more sense to me, not just as a film enthusiast, but as a Christian to approach culture knowing that it's first and foremost a gift from God. Yes, it has traces of the fall, but there's that goodness in it too. And in my time working within film, I see that there has been a shift more towards a general understanding that, yes, movies are good to be explored by Christians as works of art, not necessarily as just things to be afraid of. And now we seem to be moving into another phase where it's accepted in many circles that that's a good thing to do, well, how are we going to do it now? And let's put this into practice and see what sort of criticism and engagement we can produce. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Josh Larson. He's the co-host of the radio show and podcast Film Spotting and is the editor and film critic at Think Christian, a website exploring faith and pop culture. We're discussing his recent book, Movies Are Prayers, How Films Voice Our Deepest Longings. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Josh Larson. He's the co-host of the radio show and podcast Film Spotting and is editor and film critic at Think Christian, a website exploring faith and pop culture. We're discussing his recent book, Movies Are Prayers, How Films Voice Our Deepest Longings. So a few years ago, there was a documentary about George Lucas called The People Versus George Lucas. And there's a, a moment towards the end of that documentary when one of the talking heads who's been kind of grousing about how George Lucas messed up his own narrative, you know, along the way, he stops and he gets reflective and he says, but you know, we're really the first culture ever in human history who has surrounded ourselves with this number of narratives and this number of stories. We're swimming constantly in stories that we tell ourselves. And they're stories that are, that are humbling. They're stories that are magnificent. You do a good job in your book, Movies Are Prayers, of giving us another bathing in, in all of these different types of narratives. And so what I want to ask you right now, Josh Larson, is what is your take on this notion? What do all of these stories do to us as human beings, given the fact that we're living in a time and living with an excess and access to narrative that our predecessors in history really didn't have? I don't know if there are any new stories being told that we're necessarily getting things we haven't thought about or encountered before. Certainly, we're getting them in new ways, and this can be technological, um, the way movies are presented now and we experience them, whether that's in a theater with Dolby surround sound and rumbling seats or at home watching them on our phone. So there's more of it, absolutely. Some of it looks new, but these are a lot of the same stories we've been telling for centuries and eons, really. I mean, we were just on Film Spotting. We revisited the Lord of the Rings films because it's been 15 years, believe it or not, since The Return of the King came out in theaters. And part of our conversation was also how those stories are timeless, not just good and evil, but also the way that evil can infect the good. And temptation plays a role and power plays a role. And these are also elements that our stories and our narratives have been struggling with for so long, from when Tolkien wrote the books through these movies and films to come will be wrestling with these sorts of things. So, yeah, there's definitely more of it. And, and with that, I think, can come a sense of exhaustion, though. When, when we look at something like, boy, The Lord of the Rings, those were three films and compare that, which we spent a little time on as well, to this Marvel Cinematic Universe that we're in the midst of now that has been around for 10 years. And I believe Avengers Infinity War is the 19th film in that franchise. So that's just an example of how the content has accelerated. And you can tell by my use of the word content maybe how I feel a little bit about that. You could certainly feel the business needs more, I think, in some of these more recent franchises, but I don't know that they're telling any new stories. Again, different characters, 
different means of technology. Some of it you see on the screen, some of it you experience in your the way you view the movie. But they're also very familiar. Well, one of the things that strikes me, and we saw a, a version of this happening in the 80s when there was the explosion of small-scale cassette tape multi-track recorder technology where you had lo-fi recordings and everyone suddenly became a record producer. And now we've had a catch-up with that, with the ability to create visual media as well. And I think about one of the films that you talk about in your book, Movies or Prayers, the movie Tangerine, mm-hmm. which, if I'm not mistaken, was literally shot on an iPhone. Yeah, that's right. Okay, and so what we have now is a democratization of the means of producing cinema. You don't have to have a high-end red camera or a $50,000 lens to make a film that could be shown in theaters and shown at film festivals. You don't have to. That doesn't mean that everyone who picks up an iPhone can make a movie worth talking about, which Tangerine is. So it took a lot of skill on the part of the writer and director, Sean Baker, and the name of the cinematographer is escaping me, but he obviously was crucial as well. And they actually adapted their iPhones with a particular lens to allow for a wider screen. So there's, you know, some inventiveness there as well. This was kind of, you know, in the early 80s when you saw the rise of independent film and what was, you know, in the 70s with the new Hollywood and those independent filmmakers, they still had a barrier in terms of the equipment and technology and the costs associated with that. With video, that went down dramatically and you had people like Steven Soderbergh suddenly appearing and making really compelling Films, But you would also have countless other, quote unquote, independent filmmakers who didn't have the gift. They had the easy equipment, didn't have the gift. So there's a blessing that comes with the lowering of those barriers. But then there's also the curse of so much more content where you just do have I I can't even number the times I'm approached with an independent film, someone who made a film, and they want me to look at it for maybe talking about it on the show or writing about. And there's a chance some of those might be amazing, but there are so many of them now that you just can't keep up with them, let alone the Hollywood product as well. I want to be aware that you're doing this criticism both in a secular context and also in a religious context. You wear both hats. And early on in your book, Movies or Prayers, you say some of these prayers, assuming that movies are prayers, are going to be prayers that are rated R. And they're going to be dealing with adult themes and subjects. So let's stay with Tangerine for a minute. I will just say that having that film be part of your book was a refreshing surprise for me because it's not a film, and for those that have not seen it who are listening, it's a film that centers around two L.A. transvestite hookers. Is that a fair yeah, 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 and it's Christmas Eve, mm-hmm. and so it's a it's basically a night on the streets as they would experience it. Sean Baker, again, the director, works with novice actors a lot of time, people who share parts of their own lives that he then writes into the screenplay. His most recent film is The Florida Project, which some listeners may be familiar with as well. Willem Dafoe was in that and made similarly, not with an iPhone that time, but also looking at people on the outside of society, on the fringes and what are their lives like, and bringing incredibly powerful moments of grace and mercy into those lives. And so Tangerine has some really rough stuff in it because these are not easy lives that these people are leading. And so, yeah, it's maybe a bit of an unexpected title for for a book on uh, theology and film. But what I'm struck by is that these are the people that when we read the Gospels, Jesus often gravitated towards. 
but they're the people that the followers of Jesus often try and ignore or push to the sides. Yeah, it starts with the people most in need of the good news rather than the people who are holding that good news so tightly close to them. And I think it's not usually assumed that a film with any sort of spiritual themes could start that way rather than the sort of assured way. That brings up sort of a contrast between something like the Jesus film and The Last Temptation of Christ. So if we look at those two, both depictions of the life of Jesus Christ, the reaction of one, evangelicals flocking to the Jesus film, loving the Jesus film, donating lots of money to make sure the Jesus film is translated into multiple languages versus boycotting and in some cases threatening the theaters that showed The Last Temptation of Christ when it was originally uh, shown. Yeah, and that's a really complicated situation, too, because, of course, we do want to be careful with something as serious as, you know, depicting the actual narrative accounts of the gospel. But we also want to allow filmmakers to explore their own faith and their own questions and their own doubts that there might be on the screen and allow them that room, that space to do it and not take the result as a personal affront to maybe our standing or our faith. Paul Schrader is the screenwriter of The Last Temptation of Christ and his most recent film, First Reformed, is a very similar exploration of what it means to believe. I think it's a much better film than The Last Temptation of Christ, um, but it's very much about doubt and why the religious life is not easy and what's so difficult about it and yet what is also still necessary about it. And that puts viewers, especially Christian viewers, in an uncomfortable place, but I don't think it's necessarily a harmful place to be. And I think we trip ourselves up when we put the defenses up so suddenly with these films that are in themselves asking questions. And we need we need to allow those questions to be asked. This draws me back to a point that you make early on in your book, Movies or Prayers, where you, you introduce this, this idea of the notion of focus. I may be taking this in a direction that you didn't intend, but for me, it's this constant question that myself as a Catholic, we're, we're taught theologically to wrestle with. And there's action and then there's intention. And sometimes an action on its surface can be a godly action. But if the intention is wrongly placed, it doesn't count to oversimplify it. What I'm hearing you saying is that there are times when a filmmaker can present to us a grisly or a prurient subject in a way that elevates us. And there are other times when it can be presented in ways that degrades the viewer. Is that, am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. The, the question that I think we don't ask a lot of times when it comes to content is, well, why is it there? We know why we might object on moral grounds or personal standard grounds. But the important question is, why did the filmmaker place that element in the film? There could be no reason, and then you're talking about an exploitation film. And yes, again, this is a fallen world, so those exist. And, and it's good to name those when we, we see those things. But not every film that has challenging content is an exploitation film. And so this also gets into a difficult area of personal discernment. That also doesn't mean if we've identified that this difficult content is in this film for good reason. And here's why it might be justified it could still be a stumbling block for someone in their personal walk. And so we can't go so far as to say, if you can't handle this film, there's something wrong with you or you're a prude. We need to allow 
Christians also to have the personal freedom to say, I don't want to watch that. I don't need to watch that. But then that crosses the line if they expand it to say, because it's not good for me, it's not good for any Christians to watch. So this is why things get, you know, this discernment issue gets so tricky because it's, yes, it's important, but it's also personal. And it's something that really has to be done one-to-one or in community so that we're not just um, painting with broad brushes in either direction. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Josh Larson. He's the co-host of the radio show and podcast Film Spotting and is editor and film critic at Think Christian, a website exploring faith and pop culture. We're discussing his recent book, Movies Are Prayers, How Films Voice Our Deepest Longings. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest today is Josh Larson. He's the co-host of the radio show and podcast Film Spotting, and is editor and film critic at Think Christian, a website exploring faith and popular culture. We're discussing his recent book, Movies Are Prayers, How Films Voice Our Deepest Longings. So there's a point in your book where you say that you see lament as an important part of the prayer process. But because of the religious tradition that you come from, lament, vocal lament, visible lament is not always easy for you. And the phrase that jumped out at me is that sometimes I can offer lament to God, but sometimes the movies do it for me. I thought about that a lot as I was reading your book, because as you were describing some of these films like Field of Dreams and some of these other films, I found tears welling up. And what Mm. I realized was that these stories have become an important part of how I deal emotionally with the world. And I want to explore a little bit that idea of us, you and I, perhaps, but also maybe our listeners and maybe others in their faith, externalizing their emotions into stories and allowing their stories to emote for them. I think this is where the idea for the book first came from when I realized watching various films that I was having an experience akin to those I've had during prayer. And I thought, well, that that's interesting. And, and I didn't spend so much time exploring the psychology of that, but just taking it as a, a given of my own experience and then saying, if I were looking for that, where else might I find it in film? And again, not in religiously themed films, but more what would be considered secular films, because those movies have frankly, moved me in ways that obviously religiously themed films have not. So what's going on there? And and it ties into what you're describing, this universal experience of why movies are so popular and people are so drawn to them, because it does bring out these sort of responses in us that maybe if you're an extroverted emotional person, you, you have in other areas of your life. But if you're not, and I'm not, you 
have an art form to help do it for you. And so certainly that's uh, been my experience with some of the more difficult movies that do qualify as lament for me. And here's where, you know, the lament movies are going to have rough stuff in them. They're going to have some of that content that we might normally, you know, just not want to deal with. But that's why they work as lament, because they're facing awfulness and not hiding it and throwing up arms to God and saying, we can't do anything more about this. So it's in your hands. We're putting this in your hands. When you get to that point, it's because you've been through some rough stuff. And movies are brave enough to acknowledge that, the tough ones. I've had this experience with joy, which is why there's a chapter on movies as prayers of joy, with confession. These are all theological concepts that it's hard to hold in our head intellectually exactly what they mean. We've been told, we've had, whether it's catechism or church Sunday school, those general ideas. So we understand them to a degree, but we don't always feel them there. And I think the movies, when they're doing similar things, when a, when a moment in a film acts as a prayer of confession or when a moment in a film offers up praise, we can feel that in a way that's different than the intellectual understanding of, of those things. You talk about this in your book, Movies or Prayers, in a personal way around the movie The Silence of the Lambs and your memory <laughs> yes. of, of when you went to go and see it with your girlfriend, who is now your wife, but your parents went and saw it earlier in the day and you bumped into them in the parking lot of the theater and they advised you, this is not a film that you need to see. And if I'm remembering correctly, you said, okay, mom, okay, dad, and you got into your car and then you literally drove around the parking lot and then went into the theater anyway. <laughs> yes. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, this would have been high school. And, and so this shows you where my priorities were. And I guess uh, what a sneaky little jerk I was. But I was not going to miss The Silence of the Lambs. I mean, I had, was already a budding cinephile and this was one of the most talked about movies of that year. At the same time, the content in there is absolutely difficult. And my parents were in their right to say, we've seen this, doing good, diligent, discerning work as parents. We, we haven't banned you from it, knowing nothing about it. We went to see it. And in our determination, not good for you right now. At the same time, I, you know, I was not going to let that pass. So I did my own personal discernment. Who was in the right years later? I don't know. I mean, I, I should have should have listened. I should have obeyed. I'm sure I would have seen it eventually. And that would have been fine, too. first places that I noticed myself having this emotional response to the descriptions in your book was when you were talking about the film Children of Men, a film that I found to be very powerful when I watched it, but even your recalling it in print began to well up the same emotions for me. And I, I, I realized something when I was reading your description, and that is I saw Children of Men when I was not a father, hmm. and now I've had children. And the way in which the description of the and, – and we'll take a moment and we'll talk about what the story of the film is in just a second. But, but the way in which my change in perspective going from being a fatherless viewer to a, a person who has children, that to me is something that is very profound. And so I wonder, first of all, if we could just talk a little bit about the basic story of children of men and, uh, and, and where, where you can find religious themes in this sort of secular science fiction film. 
So Children of Men is based on the P.D. James novel and the film adaptation. The directors, Alfonso Cuaron and Clive Owen, starred in it. And there's this, the basic story is it's it's in the future and no children have been born for a number of years. I recall how long. And there is rumors and whispers of this miracle baby. And Clive Owen is uh, somewhat of um, a rebel, I guess you could describe him. And and he comes across and finds that this woman does exist. It's a young single mother played by Claire Hope Ashety. And he is trying to protect her from the government, essentially. And let's just say that, that this is happening in a time when England is the only stable country left but England has pretty much become fascist, and it's become very hostile towards immigrants. And this woman, who is now with child, is a woman of color and is a refugee. Is that's that, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, and this is why the Clive Owen character is somewhat of a political insurgent. And and so he's guiding her in this scene that I described in the midst of combat that has broken out between government soldiers and rebels. And it functions as this sudden, amazing moment of worship where the cries of this baby silence all the bullets. Again, none of these soldiers would have heard a baby cry in years. And this is a miracle that they're witnessing. And it was interesting to me as I wrote about this and and the book got out, so many people would say, as I described it as a Christmas story, that here is these parents in a way of this miracle child being ushered through a dangerous land. Uh, And there's the scene where the Clive Owen and the Claire Hope Ashity are walking and the soldiers put down their guns and let the baby pass. There's even a moment where one of the soldiers makes the sign of the cross. Some of them fall to their knees. They fall to their knees. And when I describe this as a a Christmas story, and I know other people have written about that as well, but so many people said to me, oh man, I've seen that movie so many times and it never struck me that way. And here I considered it almost to be too obvious to include in the book, but I did include it as a prayer of praise because there's just this moment where everyone on screen can't help, but they're compelled to offer this moment of worship and this moment of praise. And it's an overwhelming scene. Again, going back to choices, which we started talking about, the way Quran decides to use sound there and the camera, which is this long reverse tracking shot as they come out of this building, it it creates a moment that's unbroken of sustained reverence. And so all of these choices come together to produce this uh, scene of worship. This is what I love about your book, Movies or Prayers, is that you take this thematic, this notion of a type of prayer, like a prayer of thanksgiving or a prayer of reverence or a prayer of lament, and then you find a guide film that you begin the chapter with and you end the chapter with, but then you don't stay with that film necessarily, but you weave in and out of that film by looking at other films that overlap with it. I just thought that the approach just generally was masterful. And I'd just like to take a moment and say, what was it like to write this? So what was your process in figuring out that that was the structure that you wanted to follow? So I think I need to credit, if I'm remembering correctly, my university press editor, Helen Lee, for suggesting that. I, I do know a very early version of the book, not even a complete version, but early drafting, spent more time on specific films, singular films, and and did kind of what you're talking about, where the whole chapter even might be embedded in one film. And I have heard from some people who wish it had been that way. They'd say, oh, I wish you'd kept writing about this movie. And I understand that. But once I did try this approach, it was really fun to kind of 
see where this is going to take me. You know, where, where would this sort of prayer, what movies would it lead me to? What what scenes would pop into my mind? Kind of like what you were doing right there with Last Temptation of Christ, right? And so it was. It became a much more enjoyable process and hopefully a fun way to read as well. The process as far as once I had that in place would really be to start with these forms of prayer. Because as I said, I'm not theologically trained in terms of education. So I had to first identify those types of prayer in the Christian tradition that were rich enough to sustain this and then say, okay, scripturally, what does this sort of prayer look like? What are the models of lament in the Old Testament and the Psalms in particular? Then how have the great Christian thinkers written about these types of prayers? How have our church traditions employed these types of prayers? Once I felt like I had a grasp of that, and really as I was doing that research, the movies would start to come to mind and the scenes would start to pop into my head. And that's where I would start piecing together how each chapter would kind of flow out. So it was sort of a um, educating myself process. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Josh Larson. He's the co-host of the radio show and podcast Film Spotting and is editor and film critic at Think Christian, a website exploring faith and pop culture. We're discussing his recent book, Movies Are Prayers, How Films Voice Our Deepest Longings. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And That's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me, but if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest today is Josh Larson. He's the co-host of the radio show and podcast Film Spotting and is editor and film critic at Think Christian, a website exploring faith and popular culture. We're discussing his recent book, Movies Are Prayers, How Films Voice Our Deepest Longings. How has the state of your faith been augmented, affected, or challenged by this choice of vocations? Well, the initial challenge, curiously enough, is, as I was describing, came from the Christian subculture itself, right? It it was very natural, having grown up in a movie-loving family, but also, you know, a a very faithful family. It was never strange for me to hold those two things in my head, my love for movies and my faith. Of course, as the Silence of the Lambs story tells, there was still discernment being done, and and there were things that I wasn't allowed to watch. So I had those limits. I, I knew movies were something we had to think 
deeply about from a faith perspective as well, but I didn't see them as something to be afraid of. And so that first challenge came when the Christian subculture told me, well, that's, if you're going to be a Christian and do this, that's how you have to think about them. And so I, you know, I thought, well, I, I, that's just not how I understand the world or God's vision for it. So I went into mainstream media. And I can't say that it was that difficult to hold those two things together, though the lines were probably more separate. So what are some of the lessons that you've learned? You said that when you made the transition to become editor at Think Christian, there were some things that you kind of had to learn how to do. Can you encapsulate those? Can you pass those on in some way about what those who would like to do this kind of work, bringing faith and culture together? Because in some ways, that's what this radio show is about. What are some of the lessons that you've learned? So I think my first instinct was, despite you know, not really naturally thinking that way myself was to approach movies from a more moral perspective and to say, okay, what is the message of this film? I I was far too concerned with the message. And I didn't really know any other way to do Christian criticism. That's the only kind I had seen. Because Think Christian is also part of the Reformed tradition, though, I was with other people and being influenced by more of a positive approach to culture in general. And so eventually that just didn't, it wasn't a natural fit for me or for the tradition out of which Think Christian was a part. So I guess what I eventually learned to do is go back to the roots of the sort of criticism I was doing at the newspapers, which was pay attention to the form first, pay attention to the aesthetics, and you can write about that and find the echoes of theology in things like cinematography, things like performances, use of color, the use of music, all of these aesthetic details that make up a film can hold as much theological resonance as the narrative proper. And so I had to learn to kind of set aside my focus on narrative and story and look at the form of the film itself. And that really kind of opened things up for me in terms of what Christian film criticism could be. Now, on the other hand, it can sometimes lead to where you you do try to stretch that connection where it doesn't apply. And then I think that's where you still have to be careful and make sure that there really is some resonance there. But that's probably been the main thing that I've started to figure out in the years at Think Christian. Have you ever had an experience, and maybe you haven't, but have you ever had an experience where you have been entering into a moment where you are walking into the moment as a critic and something about the art that you're confronted with makes your Christian side take the foreground and suddenly you are either having a reaction fully as a person of faith, of awe and wonder, or of disgust and revulsion. But I'm wondering if that has ever had a, if you've ever had that experience of having the places shift profoundly for you. Boy, it doesn't, it all feels of a piece in my mind somehow. Mm. I I can't, you know, what you're describing is still sort of a take this hat off and put the other hat on dynamic. And I can't say I've ever experienced it like that in the moment. I experience it after the fact when I'm doing the work. And then I'm certainly putting on, when I'm writing a Think Christian essay, I'm certainly putting on my more theological hat, you know, the faith hat. And the reviews I write for my own website are more for a mainstream audience. So when I write those, I guess I have the other hat on. But that's after the fact. When I'm watching a movie, 
I can have something like fire the faith area of my brain if such a thing exists. You know, like this moment might fire that and the next moment might fire something that doesn't really have a direct connection to a life of faith. Uh, And both of those things can be happening at the same time. So now that you've been doing this for more than 20 years, and you've been doing this both from a context of faith and from a context of secular life, where are you at now in your faith journey? Where are you at in your faith walk? Can I ask that? Uh, you can ask it, but you'll have to be more specific. Sure. Because uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I haven't given myself an annual report sure. recently. <laughs> so I, I'm, a, I'm a person who was raised atheist and still has a, an internal atheist that looks back at me every once in a while and sort of critiques my moments of joy and faith and okay. all of that. And so I, I guess I'm wondering, you come from a background where you were raised in a very Christian household with very clear, bright lines, the silence of the lambs example being just one. And I'm, I'm asking kind of where where your assessment of your walk of faith is right now. I would describe it as feeling, I guess in recent years, I would say I'm feeling more assured in my lack of assurance. And I don't know if that makes any sense at all, because um, I'm trying to put something into words that I haven't before um, or, or really tried to intellectualize at all. But there, it's much more of a back and forth than I think people like to present. This has a lot to do with First Reformed, actually, now, now that I'm thinking about it uh, and not comparing myself to the, you know, the, the really spiritually adrift pastor played by Ethan Hawke in that film. But he's certainly undergoing a, a crisis of faith. And I wouldn't describe myself as that, but I certainly recognize the way things swing in a life of faith that uh, people don't often like to acknowledge and maybe at a point now where that doesn't feel catastrophic, <laughs> which is also how I think it's depicted quite often. Well, Josh Larson, this is a blockbuster of a book. It really, I mean, I'm not kidding when I say I was reading it and I was having, I was having my own emotional investments and swings. And I, I thought that the way that you brought together the themes, the prayers, and the deep dives and weavings of the films was just masterful. I think this is, Movies or Prayers is just a wonderful book. That means a lot. Thank you. Well, and thank you for, for taking time to talk to me and my listeners about it. Absolutely. So we've been speaking today with Josh Larson. He is the co-host of the radio show and podcast Film Spotting, and he's editor and film critic at Think Christian, a website exploring faith and pop culture. He's been writing and speaking about movies professionally for more than two decades. He began in the newspaper business with the Chicago-based Sun-Times, and he worked for them for more than 10 years. In 2011, he joined the Christian media landscape as editor at Think Christian, and in 2012, he joined the long-running weekly podcast and broadcast Film Spotting, aired on WBEZ in Chicago. He's the author of the book Movies Are Prayers, How Films voice our deepest longings. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. <laughs>